All right, guys, good morning. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started. We're missing quite a few families. Uh, I know that a few are gone um, just because of, of sickness. We're going to pray for, for them, particularly the Honorios here in just a moment, and, and others from traveling. So grab your Bibles and go ahead and open to John chapter 17. John 17. We're going to begin with, with prayer for those families. Father, we ask now in this time of study and meditation on your word that our hearts would be stilled and our minds would be quieted to hear and receive what it is that you intend for us to, to perceive and understand from your word. I pray, God, for the preaching to go forth unhindered, that as I preach, God, the words that I speak would come from you, God, in the scripture before us. I pray, Lord, for the ears of the hearers to be open, to acknowledge their sin when confronted by the Spirit, and to move in repentance and in faith towards the gospel as it is preached. We pray, God, for those who are not here and unable to gather. Uh, we pray for the Honorius and particularly the, the, the kids who are sick and who have uh, caught a, a slight cold. We pray for their quick recovery and for John and for Sandra as they tend to their, their loved ones and uh, for extra patience and uh, endurance in the difficult task of not simply caring for children but for many children and uh, for Sandra's own strength as she uh, approaches uh, Lord, the, the nearness of the end of her pregnancy. Um, and so we, we give thanks for the life there and for, for the life of, uh, of the, as of yet, unborn children uh, uh, in many families throughout our church. We pray for those also who have not gathered because they're traveling, their work, or uh, for other reasons have taken them away. And we, we ask, Lord, that you would comfort and encourage them by your spirit now. May they find the time to, to rest and trust and read uh, your word and to be taught and instructed by it even though they do not gather with us. And ultimately, Lord, we pray for your glory to be displayed through the gospel of your son, Jesus, and that our hearts would magnify the Lord as we behold the splendor of Christ. We now pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn our attention to John chapter 17. Your heading in the Bible may call it the high priestly prayer. I think for our purposes, we'll simply call it Jesus' prayer for his disciples, since the Lord's prayer was already taken in Matthew chapter 6. But this really rightly can be called the Lord's prayer because it is our Lord's prayer, where in Matthew chapter 6, our Lord teaches us and models prayer. Really, in all of the prayers of Jesus in the gospel, this is the longest, this is the clearest. 
And this is the most intimate. We have a, a unique and, and special glimpse into the heart of Christ as he prays not only for himself, but for those who would follow him. So this prayer is immensely important to the church. In fact, I want to submit to us that in this prayer, you and I and foundation and every church and all disciples of Christ find the purpose and the meaning of their mission as Christians and as the church. That is, we, we, we see in Jesus' prayer, that is, what he prays for and how he prays, what it is for us to be about as a church with crystal clarity and, and with utmost precision. You're not left hanging or in suspicion, suspension. We are given clear instructions. So let's turn our attention to John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I have come to know in truth, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that I sent that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. But they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the world for the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I am them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But clearly Jesus, his prayer is heartfelt, is urgent. Remember the context of this prayer is offered right at the end of what we have been calling the farewell discourse. Jesus' final words to his disciples before, as we see in chapter 18, he's arrested and led to the cross. For the last several chapters, beginning in chapter 13, he has been leaving final instructions and painting the last bit of the picture for Jesus' disciples to put together and understand after he has departed. That is, after he has been arrested, betrayed, crucified, put in a tomb, risen, and ascended. And after the Spirit, which he promises comes, the disciples will turn their attention to these words, to these final few hours with Jesus. And from his instruction, draw out what it means to live in light of the gospel Jesus portrayed and taught. There are really two groups of people he speaks to here, or speaks of and prays for, rather. First are his disciples, those that are with him there in the upper room, the 11 that he has been speaking directly to, but also to those who, through their own ministry, would also come to be his disciples. But for our purposes this morning, we're going to understand that the promises and the prayers prayed on behalf of the immediate 11 are also available and meant and implied for us today. That in your own study, know that there are some direct references to the 11, to the apostles and disciples there, and to those who would follow from their ministry. But he prays, of course, to the Father. Not simply Father, but also Holy Father. This is a reverent prayer. The Son praying to the Father, petitioning, requesting that the, world, that the, the words that were given to him be brought to full fruition in their disciples' lives. That all the teachings and the ministries and the activities of Jesus, which will culminate in his cross, will ultimately bear fruit in their lives. So this is a prayer, a petition, that Jesus offers on behalf of his disciples and those who would come after, that they be kept. He prays this prayer, notice, on the basis of the Father's love for the Son. He mentions this several times but the intimate relationship that the Father and the Son have had with one another from the very beginning. Notice in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
And again, before the foundation of the world, verse 24, glory was given to Christ because the Father loves the Son. On the basis of the Father's love for the Son, and of course the mutual love of the Son for the Father, two perfect persons, mutually loving one another, on the basis of that love is the petition of Christ, the Son to the Father, that the disciples may be kept in their ministry. They are to walk faithfully in all that Jesus has taught them about God. Jesus, remember, has come to reveal the Father to the world. He is, as Paul would put it, the fullness of deity indwelt in person form, the image of the invisible God, or the author of Hebrews will say the exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of his glory. Jesus is the full and final representation of God to man. And so Jesus, in that capacity, has taught, has walked, has instructed, and has prayed that those who would be called Christians, his disciples, would take that revelation and proclaim the truth of Jesus to the world. And the first five verses here really is a sort of setup for the rest of the prayer. And there are lots of themes we can draw from the prayer, and they're there in verse 5. But there are two primary themes that I want to just pick up on that run, I think, through the, the full chapter. And these are two twin themes of mission and glory. Glory is obvious enough. He's mentioned glory several times throughout the prayer. That the Father may be glorified in Christ, that he, that he would be glorified by the Father, that even the glory that was with and given to Jesus in the beginning would be given then to the disciples as they go forth and manifest their own mission. But really, mission is not unrelated to glory. In fact, we see that in Jesus' own words, the glorification of the Son is the mission of God. And that Jesus' own mission was to bring glory to the Father. So we see both that the Son has come to glorify the Father and prays now that the Father would glorify the Son. So the glory, that is, the, the splendor of Christ, the, the beauty and the majesty and the worth that is Jesus displayed through his person and work, displayed through his cross his life, his death, and his resurrection is to be made manifest in the disciples' life and through the world upon the accomplishment of Jesus' work. So he prays to glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is both the purpose and the mission of Jesus it is why he was sent into the world to give and to reveal and to display that glory. He was given all authority, verse 2, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom has been given to him by the Father. I have, verse 4, glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So the mission that Jesus was sent on was to glorify the Father. 
to bring reconciliation to the Father. He speaks of the impending death that will soon bring that mission to a close. The glory of the Son is the mission which Jesus was come, has come to accomplish. In a very real way, we see that the method is the mission. Glorify, he prays. But I want to hone in more directly on not the glory only of the Son, but of the glory of the disciples. Jesus says, verse 22, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. See, what begins in eternity past in the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son and the Spirit now spills over into creation. And that glory which had been given to the Son, he also now gives to his disciples, to you and to I, if we are in Christ. That glory, that splendor, that majesty that points to Jesus as perfect and holy and righteous, all of the, the beautiful manifestations of the personhood of God are seen and felt ultimately in Christ, but manifested through his disciples. This is what Jesus means when he says, I have given them the glory which you have given to me. And so on behalf of the mission, when he sends them into the world, it is this mission that the church, his disciples, would then glorify God. That's it. The mission of the church is to glorify God. And there are many ways and methods which we should and must go about in glorifying God. Jesus will say at the end of Matthew, chapter 28, to go and make disciples of all nations. So we glorify God by making disciples who in turn glorify God. We glorify God when we care for, love, and serve one another, when we clothe the poor and feed the hungry. There are many ways, countless ways, we can glorify God. But it is the church's burden and the church's glory that the mission that we have been sent into the world to do is to hold up the beauty and the majesty of Jesus in his gospel. Paul says in Ephesians 3 that the church exists so that through it, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the heavenly places. That is, the church is holding up the jewel of our redemption in Christ to the world. And as the gospel shines its light on it, it will refract beautifully and attract those to whom God is calling to himself. That's our job. Our mission is the glory of Christ. Christ's mission is the glory of God. And God has sent both Christ and us into the world to glorify himself. There are four ways in which the glory of the disciples is felt and seen. First, we see the disciples, as Jesus prays, are to be kept Look in verse 11. He prays that they would be kept. Holy Father, this is the second part of verse 11, keep them in your name, which you have given me, 
that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I am coming to you in these things. I speak into the world that they may have, may have their, my joy fulfilled in themselves. For I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So on behalf of the disciples, Jesus prays that they would be kept. And what does it mean to be kept? This ultimately means that they are kept and faithful to the revelation of Jesus. Because he has revealed the Father's will and his word to the disciples, they are to faithfully keep it in line with what what has been taught to them, they are to faithfully keep it, to not stray from it. Fidelity to the revelation of God through Christ is paramount to the faithfulness of the church in the world. Jesus knew that if the glory of the Father and of the Son was to go forth unhindered in the world, he places the burden on the church to be faithful to this word. And so he prays on their behalf that they are kept faithful. In fact, this is just what Jesus instructed in chapter 15 when he tells them to abide in him and that his word would abide in them. That this, this faithfulness, this not straying, this failure to remove ourselves from him means ultimately that what he has instructed in chapter 15, he is praying for now. But there's a purpose for our being kept, our being faithful to what he has taught us. We see there so that we would be unified with one another. Again in verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. So the prayer here that they are kept by God is ultimately a prayer that in their keeping... They are unified. Central to the mission of Christ to glorify God in the world is creating a people for himself through Christ's work. And so that church must be unified. They're unified together with joy in verse 13. He says, I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So what is it that unifies us as a body? It is the joy of knowing Christ as a revelation of the Father to us. It is the joy of knowing Christ and being known by him. That which Christ has made known to us, we rejoice in. And we come together, unified, one, even as Christ and the Father are one. But notice we are to be unified and kept in the world. He prays that we're not removed from the world, but that we are kept in the world. That is, in and not of. Jesus is not of the world, and so we as disciples are not of the world, and yet we are in the world just as Jesus himself had been in the world. To offer a simple formula, in, not of, means for the world. What other reason could there be if Jesus puts us in the world, instructs us not to be of the world, except that we then, in our manifestation of the glory of Christ, then work and act 
for the world. We are not to be of the world in the sense that we allow the passions and desires and temptations of the world to sneak into our lives, to cause us to be unfaithful to that which Christ is calling us and has prayed for us to be faithful to. We are not of the world in the sense that we share the values and desires and purposes that it does. And yet we are in the world, which means we are not removed from it. We do not cloister ourselves away from the rest of the community or the world. We are not sectarian in that sense. We are very much part of the world. We are in it. If we are in it and are not to be of it, then Jesus here clearly means for us to be for the world. Now, the world in the Gospel of John really is a world that is hostile to Christ. It has rejected him, ignored him, has crucified him, and as it does to him, so it will be to his disciples. The world, it says in verse 14, will hate them because they are not of the world. And yet, Jesus prays for their faithfulness while they are in the world for the sake of those whom God is calling out of the world to himself. So the mission of Christ to save those who are in the world, those particularly that the Father has given him, that is the disciples, now will continue not through Christ but particularly through his church as they are united to Christ and unified together joyfully. So he prays that they are kept. This begs the question, how are we to be kept? Well, in 1 John chapter 5, John, our apostle here, also says this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God, that's Christ, protects him. The word there for protect is the same word for keep. So Jesus keeps and protects us as we fight sin. And he protects us in our fight against sin, particularly from the evil one. The temptation and the snares of the enemy laid around us, we are protected from, shielded from, through Jesus himself. Specifically, the promised spirit that he made known would come in chapters 14. And in 16. So we are kept by the Spirit whom Christ sends. It is the Spirit of Christ Himself who protects us as we fight sin both in our lives and in the world. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Peter says, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This being guarded by God's power, it's a different word in the Greek, but the meaning is still virtually the same. We are kept, guarded, and established by God's power. Again, what does this mean? It is God's power which raised Jesus from the dead, we are told. And it is through his power 
that Jesus is risen from the dead according to the Spirit. So again, we have the Spirit promised by Jesus to keep us in our fight against sin, in our battle in the world, for the sake of those whom God would call to himself. So Jesus, knowing this, sending his disciples into the world on that mission, prays that they would be faithful to the work and the word that he has laid out before them, and in praying for them, asks that God would keep them through his spirit, that would not let them fall or stumble or step too far off the path, that they would be kept until the very end. This is a very great and precious promise that we are kept by God, not only in our salvation, secure in his hands, but even our sanctification is promised and is certain for us as we fight sin, as we move forward in faithfulness to his word. So this keeping is necessary for our activity in the world. And honestly, we should see in it a provision of, of confidence and security as we face the battles and temptations we do. We will not ultimately fail or fall away. We will not give in to the temptations of the world. God will certainly call us back to himself even when we stray. That's the promise of God's keeping power. Jesus has prayed for that. When we are kept by the power of God, when he who is born of God himself protects us, then we can move confidently with a measure of hope and security on the mission we have been sent. And so it makes sense. Jesus prays that we would be kept. Secondly, he prays in verse 17 through 19 that we would be sanctified. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I sent them. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be set apart for God's purposes. That is, he's praying again that they would be set apart and equipped for the mission that he has sent them into the world to accomplish. Jesus himself was sanctified. He says in verse 19, I consecrate myself for their sake. He lays his life down. He gives himself in complete willing submission to the Father to be used by God for the purpose and the accomplishment and the mission that he has laid out. And so he says, as a model for them, I do this myself. As you sent me into the world, so I send them. So they are to be sanctified in truth. What does it mean to be sanctified in the truth? He tells us there, there in the end of 17, your word is truth. All that the Father was given, had given to Jesus to teach, we are to obey. All that the Spirit reminds us of and leads us in, the Spirit of truth, we are to submit to. All that we speak and encourage and commend to one another from Scripture, that is true. So we are to be sanctified in truth, in the truthfulness of God's word, in the truthfulness of the gospel, and the truthfulness of Jesus' own consecration to submit himself to the Father's will that led him to the cross and to his death. Sanctified in the word means giving ourselves completely to the authority and the truthfulness of what Jesus teaches and commands. All of the scripture leads us to truth. All of the scripture is true. And therefore, let us be students of the word that we may be sanctified in the truth. Beyond this, we are sanctified 
as we follow Christ. Jesus picks up his cross and so tells us to do the same. Again, the writer in Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that we should lay aside every weight of sin that ensnares us and run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So Jesus himself, as he says, models for us what it looks like to be sanctified in truth, even when that truth leads to hard and ultimately difficult ends. Part of what it means to be a disciple then is to take up the mantle of truth-telling that Jesus himself has done. The word tells the truth to the world about God, and we take up that same mantle to tell the world the truth about Christ, even if it means our own death. For many of the disciples of Jesus, it will mean that. So he prays not only that they would be kept faithful to their mission in the world, but as they are kept, they would be sanctified, growing, holy, and set apart for that purpose, that the truth would be told. I just wonder, friends, are we, having been sanctified and set apart as saints, are we taking up that mantle for which we've been set apart? Are we truth-tellers of the gospel? Are we displayers of the glory of God? Theologically, we can affirm we've been consecrated and set apart for that task. But if we examine our lives, could we say that we have truly walked faithfully to that consecration? Are we living and breathing and making much of the glory of Christ in our sanctification? Or have we merely fared filled our heads and our hearts with knowledge about God, connections between one Bible verse and another, helpful, quick quips and sayings to comfort a friend or to pass off a quick Christian identity. Jesus, who consecrated himself for our sake, calls us then in our own sanctification to tell the truth. On a myriad of different ways we can do this, but ultimately it means standing on the gospel as true. The true story that Jesus is the Son of God, that he became a man, that he suffered death though he was not a sinner, and that on the cross God poured out all of the wrath against our sin and unrighteousness, and that those who believe in Christ by faith will have eternal life. That was his mission, and we believe it and proclaim it as true. Verse 3 tells us the eternal life is that we know him, the only true God, and Christ whom he has sent. When we proclaim that truth, not as simply good news, but as a true story, real event, meant for our good, are we walking faithfully in the truth and according to our purpose, which we have been set apart for. So he prays not only that his disciples are kept, and are sanctified, but third, we are unified or united. Again, in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us and the world may believe that you have sent me. We are to be united together as one, just as Christ and the Father are one. What this ultimately means for us is that we are centered around and on the person of Jesus alone 
and that we gather ourselves around as one, around Christ. Our unity as one, we are told, comes from Christ. He's borrowing here the language of union. As the Son is, has union with the Father, so those who are of the Son have union with one another and with the Father and the Son. This, of course, is a mystery that we simply don't have any amount of time to explore. But friends, unity of the church flows from our union with Christ. When we speak of being in Christ, we are actually speaking of the mystic, sweet union we have in him and with him. That we have been brought to participate in his very personhood. Peter tells us that we are partakers of divine glory. We are very much being made, remade in the image of Christ. So our unity together as a church and as disciples comes from our individual union with him as Christians. So he prays that just as that union between the Father and Son exists, may it also exist in his disciples as they gather together. And he does indeed intend for gatherings. There is true that any Christian you meet around the world is a brother and sister in Christ and is part of the global or the universal church. But there is no healthy Christian outside of a local gathering of God's church because it is in the local expression, the gathering of Christ's body, in which the unity that he prays for and the union that is a reality in our salvation is actually on display. It is meant to be seen and observed, and we can know this because he says that they, in their unity, would be seen by the world so that the world may believe you have sent me. So the very purpose of our unity together is so that it can be seen and felt and to some degree understood and therefore lead to faith. Your union with Christ does not mean that you can live your own privatized faith apart from the rest of the church. But you are to be gathered in local embassies or outposts, is what a church is, that reflects that union with Christ and tells the story of the glory of Jesus who has become man. So he prays that they would be united just as the Father and the Son are one, that the church would be united in Christ, not only here, but also in their purpose and in their love and in their action, that they would be one in all of these things. Or as the book of Acts would put it, they were of one mind or one accord. That's unity within the church. It doesn't mean that there weren't disagreements. We don't have to read very far in Acts to find that there were. In any part of the New Testament letters, plenty of disagreements. Yet the call is the same, to have unity with one another. We greet one another here in the spirit of Christ and in the bond of peace. The unity we have in the spirit and the bond of peace brings us, unites us, binds us together very literally to act as one. Though we are all very different in many ways. But we move together as a church in Christ, one in purpose, love and in action. And ultimately, this is God's evangelism strategy for the world. He sends prophets, he sends evangelists and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but it is the saints themselves, it is the church itself, which is to be the main evangelistic component to the world, our unity, our truth-telling stories, our display of the glory of God. So Jesus prays that we are kept, sanctified, united, lastly, perfected. 
He prays that we would be perfected. In verse 24, Father, I desire that they, that is his disciples also, whom you have given me, that is all those elect, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. A righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you, know you who have sent me. I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I, and I in them. Jesus is praying not only for their keeping in the truth, their sanctification in the truth, and their union with him in the truth, but also they're ultimately being perfected in that truth. And that is the ultimate hope and destination of all true disciples, trusting, believing, expecting that the work Christ began would ultimately come to fruition. And we are to be perfected in all sorts of ways here. We're perfected in glory. He says that we would come to share in the same glory that Jesus was given, he says. That they would see, he says in verse 24, the glory that you have given me because you loved me for that foundation of the world. We'd come to see and behold and share in that same glory. What does Romans chapter 8 tell us? Those who have been called have been justified. And those who have been justified have been glorified. He speaks here in the past tense, just as Jesus does, but it speaks of this future glory that will be ours. We are to be perfected in glory. In verse 26, we know that we are to be perfected in the knowledge of Christ. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. He has given us the Spirit, and all the knowledge of Christ will come to be taught and known and believed by his disciples in due time. No, we won't exhaust that knowledge, but we will be perfected in that knowledge. Paul says, of course, in 1 Corinthians, now we see in a mirror dimly, but soon we will see face to face when the perfect comes. There will be real knowledge of Christ in that day, and so he prays. Though we are not there with him, he prays, and his desire is that we would be with him and know him perfectly, completely, without sin, without failure, without distortion. We would know him in our glory, in the perfection of Christ. But lastly, and ultimately, we would be perfected in the love of God itself. He says, I will continue to make your name known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We are to be perfected in the love of God because this is ultimately what Jesus displays about God. Yes, his holiness. Yes, his, his kindness. But ultimately, his love. John says it earlier in chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus comes ultimately to display the love of God for his people. And it is this for which Jesus prays the knowledge of that love would be perfected in us as we are sanctified and kept and come together and gather together in our unity in Christ. We come to know and be fulfilled, filled with the love of God, which surpasses all things. What does this mean for foundation? Three things as we wrap up. First, it means that Christ has prayed for us. Christ has prayed for us. Christ is our great high priest. And he intercedes for his people. He prays for us. 
Just consider for a moment what that means that Jesus is praying for us. He's not only thinking of the 11 there, he's actually thinking of us. When he says not only these, but those who will believe in me through their word. If you believe in Christ through the word of the apostles here in the scripture, if you believe the gospel, know that Jesus has prayed for you. These things are for you. What does it mean to have Jesus pray for us? Just for a moment, turn to Luke I realize that I didn't write my reference here. Who is the greatest? Is that nine? Come on, sword drills. This happens twice. Forget Luke. Well, don't forget him. Well, let's move on. You may be familiar with the story. They're arguing about who is the greatest. Peter is rebuked by Jesus because Jesus tells him that Satan has demanded to sift him like wheat. But Jesus' response is that, I prayed for you. Peter has been threatened by Satan to be torn upside down and shaken about that his faith would be made like the chaff and fly away, but Jesus prays. That's the kind of intercession that Jesus offers. Christ prays for us. Not only does it mean that Christ prays for us, but this means, and secondly, that the Father will answer his request. Striking that Jesus prays to God, the Father, this is my desire. This is what I want. When he says that my heart desires this, are we not to believe then that God will not give to his Son all things? That he will give to his Son the desire of his heart? And it is this, that we would be perfected in glory of the knowledge of Christ and in the love of God. So the Father is pleased to give to Christ what he answers because Christ is not only perfect and righteous in all things, but Christ is his Son. So the Father will give what the Son has requested. What this means is Christ's intercession then for us is effective. He does pray. When we have been strain off the path his prayer for us to be kept in return and sanctified by the spirit when he prays for our union it, our unity it means that it will come to pass that none of these things will fail because the father indeed will answer so our call here is to meditate on these prayers of jesus not wishing hoping that they become true but believing that the father will and is answering them according to jesus's desire the last thing that this means for foundation is that we have our assignment. I said in the beginning, this prayer gives us the, the, the true position that the world is to face, the, the church is to face in the world, that is on mission for God's glory. 
we have our marching orders. We are told what to do. Go into the world, glorify God, keep the truth, be sanctified in the truth, united around the truth, and grow in knowledge and love and perfection in that truth for the sake of the world. But this prayer, friends, only works if Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus prays this, indeed, before he's arrested and before the cross, but it becomes effective the moment Jesus accomplishes his mission. When we understand that it is through the death of Jesus that this prayer is answered by Christ, we become clear about our own job to walk and live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This prayer is for us and effective for us when we know that the cross of Christ was effective to redeem us of our sins, that all our unrighteousness has been forgiven when we trust and put our faith in Christ. It means that it is working for us, being kept for us, sanctifying us, uniting us, and perfecting us in all knowledge and truth because Jesus lays his life down. So the basis of our mission in the world is not on our ingenuity. It's not on our confidence that we can do what Jesus did. It is that Jesus himself perfects us by his own death. His blood shed for us, his body broken, and by faith, our union with him actually compels us to such things. This week, and especially in our community group, we want to examine what it means to be a church that is on mission the way Christ has prayed for us to be. Still much to explore and left on the table, but may God help us in this endeavor. Can we pray? Father, there's... Uh, still so much to, to know and learn from the prayer of Jesus here and we've only begun to just barely scratch the surface but I do pray Lord that you would remind us in your spirit of the truth of your, your keeping us of the spirits guiding and leading us and sanctifying us the truth of our union with Christ, which leads to and breeds unity within the church for the sake of those who would see us observe the redemption story we tell and proclaim and lead others to you. Help us to fully believe that this prayer is effectual on the basis of Christ's willing, voluntary submission of his own life to your purposes. You save us because Christ died for us. So, may we live on mission, standing tall and confident that what Jesus has prayed for us will come to fruition and is even now being worked out in our lives. Keep us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.